I think there's a lot of money to be made. And if anyone is skilled to do it, it is publishers. But they have to think in terms of what audience can we uniquely capture with content? And then what businesses and services, including information services, but also other things, can we bundle and sell to those people in a way that they trust us? You're listening to FIP Insider, the podcast that gives you the insight on current trends and future tech in media. Hello and welcome to FIP Insider Podcast. I'm Charlotte Ricker. And I'm Ashley Norris. And we are on episode three, Ashley. Well, three in the bag. Three in the bag. Three in the bag, yes. Three is a magic number, apparently. Apparently so. Well, this is quite a magic, a magic episode, Ashley, uh, because we're looking at one of the biggest challenges facing the media industry, getting the audience to pay for their online content. It's coughing up the cash time. It is. Because the thing is, right, what's amazing about the media industry is we have this engaged, loyal audience, don't we? And it's something that a lot of companies would pay a lot of money to have access to. Well, they're spending huge amounts of money on social media platforms to get those, exactly. build those relationships. Exactly. And we have them already. We've already got them. But the bottom line is, how do we turn that audience into money? And we're going to find out, Ashley, by speaking to four startups. Now, they want to empower media companies to make money from their content. Now, Ashley, you have been uh, doing the interviews and chatting to these very, very interesting companies. I have, as this is my favourite subject. It is indeed. So Making I'm... cash from publishing, from yeah. media. Yeah. yeah. So I want you to tell us and tell our lovely listeners, please, who have you spoken to? So we've got, uh, interestingly enough, we've got uh, people from four different startups. And one of the things I find most interesting mm-hmm. is that they, they're kind of complementary in some weird parallel universe. I guess somebody could probably work with all four of them. Yeah. Media company could work with all four of them. Yeah. Um, the four are, so Matthias Levac from PayRead. So PayRead is basically a mobile payment platform. So instead of you paying for something like a credit card, not everyone's got credit cards. No. Um, you're paying for through your mobile I phone. didn't know, actually, that apparently every third person in the UK doesn't have a credit card. Shock, eh? Isn't it a so, shocker? big opportunity for PayRead. Um, we're also speaking to Jason Bay from Pico. So basically they, what they offer is a 360 solution for kind of paywall paid content. So everything from you know getting sign-ups to kind of managing yeah. your paywall. Yeah. I mean, they do, do it all. We've also got Dominic Young from Axate. So Axate is basically a digital media wallet. The idea it enables media companies to take casual instant payments for articles which it would like gives on a paper read basis yeah. and there's also Tony Hale from Scroll so Scroll is a quite high profile newish startup and they're building out a subscription service which gives you access to um, an awful lot of media properties and it's all ad free there's no ads and their stick I guess their pitch to publishers is you know the money you get from being part of their ecosystem is more than they were making advertising yeah yeah fantastic interesting let's find out what they've got to say dominic i just kind of wanted to kick off more generally to talk to you about um about paid content um i guess from a lot of publishers perspective one of the key issues is is it going to work for everybody you know are is everyone going to be able to set up kind of membership subscriptions or any kind of paid for type um paper type schemes online or is it just limited to the kind of you know the the new york times the economist and all those others i think the answer to that question is it's important for publishers of all kinds to be able to match their value proposition and their business proposition with their product so if you are a very high value uh, product with an affluent audience who's willing to make commitments then a subscription model is a really good option. And we've seen from the Times and the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal how successful that can be. But we also know that at the other end of the market and in the middle, there's a whole Mm -hmm. range of different uh, propositions that have traditionally existed and a whole range of different levels of engagement and commitment that people are willing to show. But on the internet, very, very difficult to adopt um, a, a sensible, relevant pricing model that works. On the internet right now, it's really free or subscription. And very often when people say payment, they use the word, or when they use, when they mean payment, they use the word subscription. And I think therein lies the difficulty. I think having an appropriate model has been the challenge of the internet rather than the question about whether or not people will pay. And I assume at this point, this is, you know, the the problem that Axate intend to solve. Yeah, Axate started from my time at News International where we were wrestling with exactly this problem. News International is, is an organisation that specialises in the mass market. 
um, and it's very, very difficult to reach the mass market with a subscription-only proposition. So the question that I've carried yeah. with me since I left there and before I left there is, what, what, what other options are there for the rest of us, for, for the middle majority of people who don't object to the idea of paying, but will only pay when the, when the price and the proposition is right? So do you want to just briefly explain how AXA works there and what type of publishers you're working with and kind of, you know, maybe as well what kind of results they're seeing? AXA works uh, by enabling what we call casual payments. In other words, you pay as you go uh, when you engage with, with media, but you don't have to promise in advance to pay for things um, when you're not sure if you want to. So the way it works is really simple. You, you get a wallet and you preload it with a little bit of money few pounds and then when you visit enabled publishers sites you can just spend money on the content you want as you go so if a publisher says we charge 20 pence to read an article you read an article you spend 20 pence but you don't have to sign up separately on each publisher you visit and you don't have to commit to spending any more than you want to do you, dominic do you know you're being charged though as a user sure of course yes 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 and and in fact as a as a user you can choose if you want to pop up uh, if you want to be a pop-up that says are you sure you want to pay then you can choose mm-hmm. to have that Actually, most users choose not to have that and they can switch it off. And the reason they choose that is because each publisher also sets a cap, a maximum amount they charge, which is a bit like a cover price. So most of our publishers will say something like, it costs 20p to read an article, but after you spend 60p, the rest of the week is free. We stop charging you, but you can keep on accessing. Or some do it on a daily basis. Some only charge you for the first article and then then the rest of the day is free. It's just like a cover price. So the pricing is in the control of the publisher. The decision to pay is absolutely in the control of the user. So when you were setting access, you must have a, an idea of what type of kind of publication you wanted to target specifically to begin with. I mean, I'm guessing local newspapers would be uh, an option and, and maybe kind of some magazine type content that um, is kind of a little bit more sporadic. When we set up, the sort of test we set for ourselves was that the, the model and... Um, working methodology that we adopted had to be one that we believed was capable of working at any point in the in the value chain in other words high value low volume high price publications and also the real mass market you know the, the kind of digital yeah. uh, equivalents of the sun in fact the sun and the daily mail and magazines and even even tv um, that was our test the initial publishers we've been working with have been pure play digital publishers and uh, yeah, sort of local, relatively small scale local newspapers and uh, and magazines. We are also working with some very very large uh, payroll products too. Um, those are not yet announceable, but uh, we we are working okay. at both ends of the scale. So it's quite gratifying. We're 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 in a place which we always hoped we would be. And are you? Are you- only working in the UK because I would imagine this would have a lot of interest to uh, a, a lot of kind of German and other uh, and other European publishers. We're currently working in the UK and in the USA. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we are expecting to be operating in other English language territories fairly soon, but we are seeing an increasing amount of inbound spontaneous interest from places like Germany, South America. Um, and, and some further flung parts of the world. So we will be rolling out into other currencies and territories um, in, in, line with, in line with demand, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose if one thing that might cause you problems in the future is, is if this kind of um, Spotify for content ever did materialise. I mean, is this something you're concerned about or is it something that you think will ever happen or... Do you think it is just something that the industry will never ever get that far together to actually to, to deliver it and that other solutions are going to work out better? Well, I think, you know, the whole point of the thinking around Axate is diversification of business models is what we need. We don't want to stand in the way of anyone doing anything that works. We just want to facilitate that. We, we think we're for the middle majority, for the people who want to have casual relationships, casual engagements with a wide range of media brands, um, and less committed uh, relationships with some and fully committed relationships with others. So Spotify for news, if you like, um, if someone creates a model that works, then I think that's great. One of the ways they could monetize that would be with, with Axate. Um, standing back and putting on my old publisher hat, I, I do struggle with it slightly because uh, when you're, especially in the news business, but to some extent this is true regardless of media type, um, if you don't have 
a certain link between how popular your product is and how much money you make, it's quite difficult to make the investment case for, for putting more, more money into, into the product. Mm. And one of the difficulties with things like Spotify is, or, or Netflix or any of those sort of mega subscriptions is the amount of money I spend as a consumer doesn't change regardless of how much I consume. Um, and that can make life a bit difficult if, if publishers are effectively tapping into that revenue pool. The more popular everyone gets and the less money there is for, for, for them to, to claim. Sure. So I think there's some issues with that model. I can see the consumer appeal, um, although you know, one thing I think consumers have learned from the internet is that as the publisher's ability to invest in the product goes down, the product gets worse. Um, it's a good thing if, if when the product's more popular it makes more money because more money gets reinvested back into the product. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess one last question, I mean how do you think people will pay for content, say in five, ten years time? Do you think it, you know, it will be completely seamless or? Yeah, do you think there are any other innovations that are likely to happen to change the way that people pay for content? I think, um, and I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think payment being as casual as browsing yeah. is the essential unlocker of huge opportunity in, in, in the sector. Because what it means is, you know, you and I as consumers are worth more money to whoever can delight us the most and persuade us to part with our money. Now, I don't think it's that hard to persuade people to part with money as long as the amount they're being asked to part with is proportionate to their desire for whatever it is they're being asked to pay for. No one would pay £30 for a coffee and no one would pay for 300 coffees when they only want one. But when you get when you get the proposition right and you don't make it too difficult uh, to actually complete the purchase, then the relationship becomes the one between the product and the consumer. Um, and that's the relationship that should always be at the heart of any consumer relationship. And I think yeah, one of the reasons we built Axate was in order to facilitate that and allow this casual process. And one of the things I'm most pleased about is that most of the users using it choose not to be interrupted. They just want to pay as they go. Mm. They're reassured by the, by the cap. Um, and their relationship is with the brand. The reason why they're happy with the cap is because they know this brand. They know, the, they know their local newspaper. And they know that a pound a week um, wouldn't be excessive but they won't be spending money unless they're actually reading the newspaper. So it sort of raises the comfort level um, and and puts the price proposition in the right place, which is that the, the cost does not overwhelm the desire for the product. Once that's true, um, everyone's job is to engage people more and more deeply. Um, and that's something which I think everyone, if they can make the business case, rises to that challenge. There's nothing better than having a creative challenge and feeling you can meet it. Um, getting up and running is the beginning of a journey, not the end. It only takes sometimes an hour. Um, then you've got a tool in your toolkit, and then you can start to learn the best way to deploy it uh, to fit your product and to fit your consumers. The best lesson we've learned from from publishers who've implemented is test, learn, and iterate is the right way to do this. Keep on, keep on learning from what your users do and how they behave, and you in turn can then start to drive your uh, your, your product to greater and greater revenues. And you can you can begin a really positive journey towards uh, towards more revenue, profitability, and growth. So my next guest is Tony Hale, who's the CEO of Scroll. Tony, do you just want to just briefly explain what Scroll is and and look at some of the issues that you're trying to fix for publishers. Sure. So the way our members think about it is that Scroll is a membership to a better internet. They pay about five bucks a month and uh, it's 50% off for the first six months. So just two bucks fifty for the first six months. And then when they go to their favorite sites, whether it's The Atlantic, whether it's BuzzFeed, Slate, Salon, USA Today, any one of currently 300 sites within the network and that's growing every month. When they get there, they get uh, the pages load uh, twice as fast. There are no ads, there's no research widgets uh, sending you off to dodgy places. There's no third party trackers selling your data. It's just the web that you've always wanted. Mm. And in exchange for those members getting that great experience in the sites, the sites have paid out more money than they would have made from advertising. Okay, so what is, you know, thinking from the perspective of the publishers, what is the differential in the price then? Right now, we're delivering a $46 RPM as an average across the network, which is way better than pretty much any publisher makes from advertising. 
at a mature network level, we expect to be delivering around about a 40% lift over what they'd be making from advertising. So how are you working with publishers in terms of, you know, are there sort of joint marketing, in marketing initiatives or, you know, how, how do they kind of help themselves to, you know, your, your develop the audience with you? Sure. So there's a few different levels uh, for publishers. One level is a basic yield level, which is, the publisher isn't uh, promoting scroll in any way. Simply when a scroll member visits their site, that site recognizes that that person is a scroll member, delivers the experience that that uh, member has asked for and gets paid more money. So in that context, it's a simple yield uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, a range of sites who have realized that basically every time they convert someone into a scroll member, that person immediately doubles in value, engages more with their content and is more likely to convert to their subscriptions. And so for those publishers, what they're looking to do is try and convert more of their uh, members to scroll. And in particular, people are often targeting things like your ad block users or outside DMA or people mm. who may be more casual or transient who aren't going to sign up for your own subscription just yet. Uh, and it's important to note scroll doesn't cannibalize those subscriptions. We don't get people past paywalls or do anything like that. We just we're focused on that experience. So. A bunch of publishers are also saying when a user comes to their site, they're saying, hey, we get it. You want an ad free experience. You want it clean, fast, beautiful. Why don't you try scroll? And here's a way for you to support us and get the experience you want across our site and hundreds of others. So in, in terms of global expansion, so we know Germany is, for want of a better word, the home of the ad blocker. And also, obviously, they're fairly prevalent in the UK, too. You know, I'm guessing these companies, these countries are, are, are very much on your roadmap. Yeah, we have very strong relationships in both Germany and the UK. Well, you can tell about the UK from my accent. Um, in, in Germany, uh, both Bertelsmann Digital Media in Investments and Axel Springer are both uh, early investors and, and great supporters of Scroll. Uh, we've built up great relationships there. As soon as we feel like the US is in a good, stable place and is growing nicely, uh, then we want to move to those two countries next. And, you know, how broad can you go with this? I mean, can Scroll be a catalyst for smaller publishers too? Yeah, we, so we designed the model specifically for smaller publishers. There were two key things that we did. One was that we, when we were modelling the model, uh, we modelled it at a, at a mature network state where there were also all of these small publishers in and making sure that the, the economics worked for them as we did. And then we made one other key change from, mm -hmm. say, a Spotify-esque model, was that instead of calculating uh, our revenue distribution in one giant pool, which is what Spotify does, we calculate each member's distribution individually. And what that means is, is that we can bring in many, many more small niche or local sites and they don't end up competing with each other because they're not fighting in the same pools. And what that's enabled us to do is to ensure that actually the instead of all the money going to a large publisher like an ESPN or a CNN or anything else like that, those guys still get paid well, but the smaller sites also mm. do very, very well under this model. It was something that was very important to me because I think that in particular local media is the bedrock of our democratic process. And, and what about any future plans? Have you announced any, any other things that you're going to be doing or any other initiatives or any innovations, different, different things to add to the platform? So right now we are focused on the feedback that we've been getting from launch, bringing in more sites because more sites brings in more users, more users delivering more money to more publishers, creates kind of like a cycle of goodness that we're trying to extend. So that's our focus is really trying on a lot of blocking and tackling around that. We've heard from uh, from members they want some way to be able to be introduced to the sites within the network better. So we're going to look at different ways of kind of discovery around that. Um, but our focus is really basically on that kind of that missing infrastructure of the web. Yeah, like what is the thing that we've always wanted where you could just go to a site, have a great experience on the site and know that mm. you're supporting that site. And so we're going to keep focusing and iterating on building that, on building that kind of web you've always wanted and making it magical. Jason, do you want to just introduce yourselves and just say, tell us a little bit about Pico, what it actually is, and kind of what what you're kind of hoping to solve with the tools that you're creating, created, and how you intend to do it. Sure, yeah. So, Pico came about as 
you know, we were thinking, how can we build a software stack that is vertically integrated, that helps publishers or brands or communities turn their audiences into customers? It, that is to say, have a, a paid customer relationship and build a funnel, a sales funnel, um, an audience funnel, if you will, on top of that relationship so that eventually it leads to a payment of some sort. Mm. Went, but what, what sort of time, how long ago was it you kind of identified this as an issue? We started out playing around actually with micropayments. So that was maybe four years ago, four and a half years ago. <laughs> so we had a sense that uh, a customer relationship between a publisher and that publisher's audience was going to be the future of this industry, the future of media. What we didn't quite know at the time was that micropayments were really not going to be the answer. But in trying to solve that problem, we came to understand that there was a whole marketing stack, if you will, tech stack, mm -hmm. that needed to be built to facilitate uh, really high-quality business outcomes with respect to reader revenue and also experimentation. So mm -hmm. you, you need to be able to to play around with different paid products and have a marketing funnel built on top of those paid products that is built with an audience in mind. And, and you're kind of fairly broad in that you offer these tools. Well, if you do want to describe what the tools are, but but you, it's not just web-based tools. I mean, you know, you're, you're offering them across newsletters and all kinds of other ways that publishers could potentially generate revenue. Yeah, that's correct. So, um, you know, we collect payments and we integrate into different types of content, but then we also have landing pages because we've come to realize that actually the website, the CMS, is really not the anchor of, of a publisher of the future, so to speak, of a publisher of the future's uh, business. The anchor is the CRM. It's the relationship with that customer. And if that relationship starts on Twitter or in an Instagram story, let's say, and you, mm -hmm. you get that, that member of the audience to give you their email on a landing page and then sign up for a paid newsletter without ever going to the website, to your website as a publisher, that is an equally valid customer relationship than if someone that you sort of pull off a platform onto your website, get to visit your website a couple times, then get an email, and then sell gated content on that website. That, that to me mm -hmm. is like version one of okay. a, a reader revenue relationship. And, and which of your tools is kind of the most popular with, with your, your, your customers? Really, yeah, yeah. So really we see people uh, combine stuff together because they're realizing that they need to build a bundle of products to reach their community. Really what, what folks succeed at when they succeed with reader revenue is they've used their content to anchor some sort of an audience community around the niche they're covering, around the topic they're covering, around just what that community is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then what, what those folks are looking for is, is usually a relationship uh, with that publisher in that they want to get a newsletter that kind of tells them, uh, you know, let's say it's a briefing, mm -hmm. but then they also want to be able to consume uh, the occasional report or high-quality in-depth mm -hmm. article. Um, on the website, but then they they might also be in a in a forum or at an event. Um, it, it, it's I think increasingly rare that someone is going to buy just the newsletter, or they're going to buy just access to the paywalled content, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. So to, to answer your question, though, what we've seen is um, folks folks use our email sign up tool actually, which is a vertically integrated system with our payment system. So we, we tie it all together because it just really increases conversions a lot more when, when someone is creating their account the same moment they enter their email. Mm -hmm. They don't have to do it at checkout, right? So we see everyone s tends to start with that, with our email sign-up tools. Some people are just building that foundation of registered users and don't have any payments turned on mm -hmm. yet. But then other folks, of course, um, are using some combination of paywall or memberships 
or uh, or paid newsletters. Memberships, have, I, I guess, to, <laughs> to answer your question, memberships really have taken uh-huh. off in terms okay. of popularity. I, I mean, when people talk, yeah. well, you know, certainly, say two years ago, when people talk about reader revenue and membership and subscriptions, they were invariably referring to kind of high-end quality newspapers like the New York Times, like the Guardian, and the, the way they were innovating in that space. But I guess the implication for what you're doing is that you think that the sweet spot might might be in very much niche content or even B2B content. I mean, are these your kind of key targets? That's that's pretty true, yeah. I think that, to take a step back, the only way publishers will succeed in establishing a customer relationship with their audience is to find product market fit with their audience, which is to say, what is it that we could provide that is of value, some value proposition to our audience. Mm. And it's just, that is to say that they'll pay for that value proposition you're giving them. It's increasingly rare that a general sort of mass audience media company is able to provide something uh, that people will pay for. If you're not Disney, you're not Netflix, you're not New York Times, um, what is it that you're going to provide that is of a value proposition that that someone will pay for that they wouldn't otherwise pay any of any of these other media companies. And so the answer just it tends to point toward niche. You're high, much likelier to create a a high value value proposition to find product market fit with your audience if you have gone deep into a niche and provide something of deep value to a narrower audience. Mm-hmm. And I mean have you got some examples of companies you've worked with in, in this way? Yeah, sure. So um, we tend to work with a lot of local news startups or local news publishers that um, have have spun out of their print legacy competitors, if you will. Um, so, for example, we have a publisher called the Colorado Sun, which was uh, they're based in Denver, and they there was a team of fifteen, an editorial team of fifteen, that spun out of mm-hmm. the Denver Post, which was bought by a hedge fund and was putting really ridiculous business pressure on that on that paper um and so their niche has been has been colorado now is that a niche i don't know but it's it's been focused specifically on um you know what what civic minded uh uh people in the state of colorado want and they've begun to bundle more and more products into that membership they don't have a paywall they have multiple tiers of membership the first tier is just sort of hey we notice you're reading our content quite a bit would you chip in five bucks a month uh to to support the team that is is producing this high quality journalism their conversion rates for that are very high um much higher than i think much many legacy publishers would expect i can't share what they are but um they're in sure. they're they're pretty good more than we expected then they've they've created newsletter products around outdoor recreation around uh state politics around a book club that are adjacent to their core business, but something that they've realized mm-hmm. that the audience that they've attracted, that the Cauda Sun is a magnet for, is also willing to pay for. And indeed, they've gotten a significant portion of their sort of $5 membership base, which, you know, is still not, it, it's good revenue, but it's not, it's not extra, exceptionally high, to upgrade to 20 or $100 a month for access to some of, some of just those newsletter products. And then they have this higher tier that will... Um, you know, special events and, and stuff like that, more of a patron tier. But that's just an example of kind of bundling around an audience that is niche enough. You know, they live in Colorado that mm. they're able to do something of high value. One other quick example is just this this journalist named Don Day uh, in Boise, Idaho. Boise is not a very large city. It's the real estate development business news there is not um, that saturated. And so this is a this is a yeah. very well sourced single, or I should say, solo journalist, who does only three articles a week, and um, he has, um, well, he, let's just say that he was shocked when he told me the number of subscribers that he has paying him this one guy for three articles that aren't even behind a paywall for for mm-hmm. in depth real estate coverage. Um, and his growth rates are pretty – he's only been around a year, and, and his growth rates are, are very good. Now, is that going to support a large company? No. But this is a very, very niche in a niche, right? And the fact that sure. the fact that he's able to 
uh, generate that kind of income with just three articles a month, or sorry, three articles a week um, around this narrow niche. Um, speaks volumes to what happens when you create a product that is is highly valuable to a specific audience. Do you think? Um, do you do you mainly work in the moment? Do you mainly work in in, in the U.S. or are, you know are your products available across the globe? We have certain limitations around uh, okay. Stripe because we are we are built on Stripe, so we can only accept um, you know payments in certain countries. Um, that's to say, we can accept payments from readers in all countries, but. Um, if you're a publisher where your bank account is domiciled, it makes a difference. Uh, we're expanding to uh, many okay. multiple currencies a little later this year, so we're very excited about that. But we do have publishers around the world who are using us just to accept U.S. dollars. Uh, so uh, two weeks ago, Frontier Myanmar, which is a Burmese uh, publication, um, uh, most, most of their audience is mm-hmm. American or expatriate, and they pay in U.S. dollars. And so they are now using Pico for their subscription uh, newsletter and, and a print magazine and membership program. Do you think uh, there is still an education job to be done on publishers and that, you know, they're quite often not really seeing the potential um, potential revenue of, of the content they produce? I mean, you know, are, are you having conversations with people that are kind of surprised about, about how much money that they could potentially be making from particular types of tools? Sure. Yeah, I think... I think the there's a lot of money to be made by savvy entrepreneurs who build businesses around their audience. Journalists and publishers, media pub, or, you know, magazine publishers, are in a unique position to build audiences, uh, valuable audiences. The disconnect I feel is when folks feel that they can take the product, whose editorial model, whose honestly, just business model was premised on a very different economy, a very different, you know, uh, print ad world context, and assume that they Mm -hmm. can just continue selling the same product, but now with just different pricing, or, you know, now we're going to put a pay, we're going to put online with a paywall. That is not product market fit. Mm -hmm. That is just uh, transferring one thing from one one phase to another uh, of, of the way the world works. So I think there's a lot of money mm-hmm. to be made, and if anyone is skilled to do it, it is publishers. But they have to think in terms of what audience can we uniquely capture with content, with our, with our skills and expertise as journalists and, and media producers, and then what businesses and services, including information services, but also other things, can we bundle and sell to those people uh, in a way that they trust us because that tr- uh, the, you know our brand and our content is what enabled that audience to form uh, to begin with. The irony is that there are e-commerce startups left and right um, spending fortunes to try to attract audience on marketing and other, other places um, so that they can reach people and then sell these products and services they developed. Um, but media folks have the opposite problem, and, and there is an irony to that. I've got with me Matthias Levak, who is the marketing manager from Payread. I just wanted to kick off, Matthias, by just asking you, um, why do you think paid-for content has become so important for publishers? And and also, can it work for every brand? Or is it just something that premium publishers like The New York Times and The Guardian and WSJ are able to achieve? Can, can it work for everybody? Print media has always relied on two sources of revenue, subscriptions and advertising. Uh, When media consumption started moving online, uh, then publishers decided that the reader revenue component was no longer relevant, that they could uh, give away content for free and rely purely on advertising for income. Uh, But as it turns out, online advertising uh, is not uh, a silver bullet uh, that they hoped it to be. Uh, People have become tired of uh, banners. Uh, ad blocker usage is at all time highs. It's uh, continuously go- growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of uh, paid placements, uh, uh, native advertising is, uh, is somewhat uh, suspicious. 
the second thing is that the growing amount of online ad revenue is also shifting away from publishers and onto big platforms such as Google and Facebook. This has forced publishers to rethink their strategy. Uh, and it makes perfect sense to look at the, the model that has already worked for them with print, which is uh, paid subscriptions and uh, and reader revenue. And, and can it work for every brand, you know, or is it just something that high-end brands can do online? I think it's not necessarily the, the high-end brands, but it uh, depends on the exclusivity of their content. So we live in a world where uh, there's free access to almost any kind of information including news so this means that publications focusing purely on uh, topics that are covered elsewhere for free will find it difficult to monetize uh, their content uh, at the same time publishers who create original content whether it's in a local language or in a unique long-form stories they will probably find it easier to convince readers to subscribe to them or, or pay uh, pay them in, in any other format to, to get access to that unique content specifically. Okay, and I mean on that topic, so everybody you know probably listens to this podcast very familiar with what The Guardian have done with membership and The New York Times uh, you know, have done with subscriptions. But, you know, are there some other examples of, of um, media companies in um, smaller countries that have done interesting things and, and actually got paid content right? Uh, I think today publications aren't necessarily competing with, with other publications for readers, so it's kind of difficult to compare the performance among themselves. But uh, rather my view is that uh, publishers are today competing with uh, all other forms of digital entertainment, so whether it's online games, uh, music streaming, video streaming. Mm -hmm. And if we look at those numbers, then Spotify today has 130 million paying subscribers. Uh, I think those are the latest numbers. Yeah. Netflix has 167 million paid subscribers. So the FIPP, which is the International Federation of uh, Periodical Publishers, they put out the annual global digital subscription snapshot of uh, different publishers. So they rank New York Times as uh, the leading uh, newspaper in terms of uh, online subscribers, and they have roughly 3 million paying readers, mm -hmm. uh, which seems impressive, but uh, that's over 50 time less, uh, times less than, uh, uh, than Netflix. So I would kind of generalize it and say that publishers are today lagging behind in performance to all other forms of digital ent entertainment. So it's not about comparing publishers to each other and seeing who is doing better because across the board, the subscriber numbers are, are low compared to other uh, digital media segments. And it makes more sense to look at what uh, leaders in other digital content categories are doing right. Mm -hmm. um, so on the positive side, there is tremendous room for, for growth if we put uh, gaming publications and, and streaming services next to uh, next to each other okay which which seems like a good point to then start talking about you know pay read and, and what your company does so how is your company enabling publishers to kind of get a slice of this revenue so PayRead is looking to solve for digital publishers what our parent company for Jumo is already doing for uh, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Amazon and many other digital service providers. So at PayRead we are looking to solve the problem of payment convenience and user access to online payments. Nobody uh, likes to use their credit card uh, online for payments. If you've ever tried it out, the process mm -hmm. is not the uh, most convenient one. Uh, you have to fill out sure. a bunch of form fields uh, and as any person dealing with online commerce knows then every form field you put in an online uh, checkout form drops the conversion rates drastically. So you simply can't get rid of those form fields when you process uh, credit card payments. Uh, so when I'm reading mm -hmm. an article, if I'm halfway through reading it and the paywall pops up, uh, I'm probably not going to waste time on finding my wallet, getting the credit card out, entering my home address and a bunch of other data. <laughs> no, we've <laughs> exactly. all been there. Uh, especially yes. if I'm doing it on a small small smartphone screen where I have to punch in a bunch of, uh, bunch of data. So essentially, if I, if I need to mm -hmm. spend the same amount of time to pay for the article as I would spend on reading it, then probably I'll instead close the article and find uh, better use for my, uh, my time. So uh, with PayRead, we are solving firstly this issue of um, uh, simplicity of the payment process. And the second aspect that most people don't realize is that not uh, everybody has a credit card. So 
if you take the US market, then there's roughly three credit cards per uh, one adult. Uh, and that's mm-hmm. actually not the case uh, in the rest of the world. In the UK, every third person uh, doesn't have a credit card. Uh, in Poland, four out of five people don't have a credit card. Uh, in India, only one in 50 people have a credit card. So if we leave the US aside, then uh, publishers in all other countries have a gap between people who can uh, read their stories and who are uh, and people who are able to pay for them. Uh, and carrier billing, which is what PayRead provides, solves that issue. Uh, so we allow any person to charge uh, purchases to their mobile operator bill. And unlike credit cards, the vast majority of people in the world actually uh, have a mobile phone. So long story mm-hmm. short, our goal is to help digital publishers uh, take this friction that they have today in their paywalls out of it. Uh, firstly, by making the payment process much uh, smoother and shorter for the reader. And secondly, by increasing the amount of people who are actually able to uh, pay for uh, for media content. Whereabouts in the world are you working at the moment? Are you working you know, across the globe or you know, which publishers are you working with? Uh, so some of our publisher customers include uh, Shipstead uh, Media Group. Uh, so, for example, mm-hmm. they uh, run uh, Swedish, uh, the, the biggest uh, tabloid in Sweden. Uh, we also mm-hmm. work with uh, Maxter, which is a magazine uh, aggregation uh, slash uh, newsstand, uh, newsstand service. But in general, mm-hmm. the solution uh, is available in roughly 80 countries. So we don't cover the US, okay. but uh, most of Latin America, all of Europe, Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia is where we operate. And uh, these telco in- integrations, 280 uh, telcos that we are connected to, those are done one by one. So uh, if a publisher chooses to go directly to telcos, they need to work with uh, 280 of them uh, one by one, uh, through mm-hmm. PayRead, they get access to all of them simultaneously. Okay, and I mean, is there a, you know an area of the world that you think has the most promise for um, what you're offering? You know, say for example, in five years' time. So there, are, as I mentioned, there's kind of two problems that we're solving uh, when it comes to uh, let's say Western European markets. Then. Uh, still the majority of people have a credit card. Uh, And uh, here it's Mm. more of a question of uh, payment convenience. So uh, that's the main angle. For example, uh, Shipstead uses our solution in Sweden, which is also a high credit card ownership country. Uh, So it definitely has room in Europe. But on the other hand, the, the kind of the other side of the coin of people who don't have a credit card uh, but uh, do have a smartphone. Here we see Eastern Europe, uh, Middle East and Southeast Asia as the primary uh, markets uh, with the biggest opportunity, purely because the digital mm. ecosystem has grown up. Everybody has a smartphone in their hands, but virtually nobody has, uh, has a credit card to actually pay for, uh, for premium content. How do you think consumers will pay for content in the future? And and do you think we'll see ever see like a, a Spotify for magazine um, new or slash news content emerge? I mean, you you mentioned them as as being a, a kind of yardstick for that um, publishing companies should aspire to. Is is that ever going to happen? So yeah, as as Spotify is the customer of our parent company Fortimo, then we have this unique insight into what they're actually doing. Uh, but mm. but in general, how how people will pay for content in the future, uh, I think depends on the the content itself and the ability of publishers to uh, to adapt their strategies. So I would like to again compare uh, publishing here to uh, another segment of digital content, which is gaming. So there are online mm-hmm. games for which you can pay the full price up front. Uh, there are games that use the freemium model and uh, in-game transactions. Uh, some games are based on recurring uh, revenue. So for publishers, it will probably work in a similar way. Uh, for example, the publisher mm. can offer one-time payments and microtransactions for time-critical content, uh, where the user purchases more based on uh, an in- impulse. Uh, for audiences that are more engaged and uh, return to the uh, site or application more frequently, 
whether it's uh, people reading the political or science sections, for example, uh, a subscription model makes more sense to use uh, there. So the same publisher mm -hmm. can use different payment strategies uh, depending on the specific content and the engagement and behavior of the uh, of the readers. Uh, whether these readers will actually end up paying for the content, uh, I think, is entirely up to the uh, publishers. Uh, gaming and streaming companies research and modify their pricing and payment methods constantly. Uh, they look at uh, how much users are willing to pay for the services, uh, what's the expendable income, uh, what's the uh, local income for people in their target countries, and actually what mm -hmm. payment methods uh, they have access to and what do they prefer to use for uh, for online transactions uh, mm. so if i just want to read one article and have to sign up for a monthly subscription i'm probably not going to do that uh, mm. so it's very much up to the uh, publishers on how well they are able to capture the data about their uh, users behavior uh, test and and modify their uh, paid content strategy and uh, I think it shouldn't be viewed as uh, this kind of profitable venture uh, coming right out of the gate where on the first day uh, the online uh, uh, paid content strategy will be profitable. Uh, I think it's instead a process of constant uh, testing, uh, learning about the users and adapting to them to figure out what works uh, specifically for, for their audience and content and uh, kind of coming up with the proper uh, payment strategy based off that. Okay, so there we have it. Four really interesting interviews from companies who are passionate about helping uh, media companies make money from their content. Yeah, it was really great and quite inspiring what they said. But the thing that stood out for me is that although we've got this amazing audience, mm -hmm. we can't make the assumption that you can just charge them for content. So if you've previously been offering free content and you suddenly stick a price on it, chances are you're going to lose your audience. Mm. Yes, so yeah. it's all about thinking of new ways to monetize content and be more creative in what you're offering. And I think it's as Jason from Pico said, You've got to delve far deeper. You've got to make content more niche and you've got to create something that customers really want, really need, and they can't get anywhere else. And then I do believe they'll pay for it. And I think that's more relevant now than ever in this current climate. Mm. There's more and more people searching for information online as well as entertainment. I, th I think that's true. And I think you only have to look at um, the way that people are endlessly searching for stats information and analysis about covid19 um, and a lot of media companies yeah. now have basically fulfilling that need by creating premium content which is behind paywalls or subscriptions um, and that's a, a really strong way there of uh, driving consumers into actually paying for content Yes, absolutely. I mean, these interviews were done before the lockdown and no one could have predicted just how much of an impact COVID-19 would have on the way people consume media. Mm. If you remember, Matthias and Payreed mentioned Phipps digital subscription snapshot in his interview. Well, the latest mm. report yes, out now yeah. and it's got some really interesting stats about this. Uh, in the last month alone, both the New York Times and the Washington Post recorded spikes in traffic at more than 50%. But I think what's really interesting and surprising is that local websites have seen an increase in traffic of up to 150 percent, which is which is amazing. And essentially, mm. it's people looking for news about the impact of the coronavirus in their local communities. I, I mean, I wonder, Charlotte, if this is a habit, you know, that people get used to, you know, suddenly they're starting to rebuild relationship with their local news providers. Yes. You know, maybe they've read papers for a long time. Now they're starting to look online again. And hopefully this bodes well for them. And, and again, I mean, Axata, you know, another company that you know, we spoke to, and they're very much focused on targeting um, local, smaller news providers. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, ultimately, traffic's great, but what, what we need to do is then convert those traffic in, into subscribers. Hmm. And as, as Matthias said, there's a huge discrepancy between Netflix and New York Times. Now, currently, the stats in the digital subscription snapshot shows that Netflix has gone up to 182 million subscribers. It's added 15.8 million subscribers in the last quarter due to COVID-19. Hmm. And the New York Times is now at 4.4 million, which is, I mean, that's nearly 50 times less than Netflix. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think so. That's such a massive discrepancy, isn't it? That's so huge. And then you've got hmm. Disney Plus, since February, it's added 20 million subscribers. 
and it's already hit its targets, which were originally set for 2024. So clearly, we although we're getting an increase in traffic, we've still got a long way to go before we start really, really driving increased subscriptions. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm sure any media company, um, media company executives across the world dream of those kind of figures. Um, but you know, I think you know, it's maybe not a straight comparison, obviously, because. Netflix um, and obviously Disney have got huge advertising budgets they're spending and all the rest of it but uh, but uh, you know yeah, I think what yeah. is encouraging though is I think that we are seeing levels of trust increasing between readers who yeah. maybe in the past might have you know clicked on on stuff on social media which may not be you know from legitimate news sources now when you get a really serious issue like we have with covid19 they want to go back to brands mm. that they've trusted in the past and you know i think you know there is still yeah. um examples of um surveys which says that trust perhaps between individuals and media companies isn't where it was necessarily a decade ago but it seems to be going in the right direction and you know if the trust increases yeah then that then becomes a way that people can then leverage, um, you know, build those relationships and ultimately encourage people to pay for those services. Absolutely, yes. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the long-term impact of COVID-19 is and if we start to see a new media model appearing. I, th I think it's interesting, you know, that you've suddenly got this um, phrase that a lot of people are using, this build back better. You know, yeah. that, you know when we come through the other side of this, People don't necessarily want society to go back to where it was. And I think that's a question that we need to be, media executives need to be asking. Yeah. You know, it, can we use this now to create something new and different and something that is, you know, ultimately more a successful model than they might have had before? Yes. And this is something we will be discussing in the next episode of FIP Insider. Hmm. In the meantime, you can download FIP's digital subscription snapshot, which is sponsored by Celera One on FIP.com. It's full of some really insightful information, so it's well worth a read. FIP is also producing weekly, weekly webinars, which are proving really popular and they're a great way to stay connected during these distant times. But in the meantime, stay safe and we will see you next time. Cheers. Bye.